Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And it is my pleasure to have with me today two amazing women, Badur Hassan and Nora Arakat. For their full bios, check the blurb accompanying this podcast online. Uh, just a quick introduction here. Uh, Badur Hassan is a Palestinian writer and legal researcher at the Jerusalem Legal Aid and Human Rights Center, aka JLAC. Badur wrote a research report about the Israeli policy of withholding Palestinian bodies titled The Warmth of Our Sons, Necropolitics, Memory, and the Palestinian Right to Mourn. Um, also with us is Nora Arakat. Nora is a human rights attorney an assistant professor at Rutgers in the Department of Africana Studies and the Program in Criminal Justice. She's worked on human rights, humanitarian law, national security law, refugee law, social justice, and critical race theory. And she is, I think, from probably best known for a lot of people in our audience as the author of the tremendous book, Justice for Some, Law and Law in the Question of Palestine. Did I get that right? Law and the Question of Palestine, yes. Um, and everyone should read that, by the way. You can follow Nora on Twitter at ampersand, at for Nora. And you can check out the work of JLAC at www.jlac.ps. That's J-L-A-C. Um, so today we are here to talk about Israel's policy of holding hostage the bodies of slain Palestinians. This is an issue that I think not enough people know about. It's an issue that's broken through in the news, I think in the past couple of years, particularly with the continued holding of the body of Ahmed Arakat. And it certainly broke into the news last week in Washington with the US Congressman, Representative Rashida Tlaib, tweeting about another case. And she tweeted, I'll quote this, meet May Afana's mother, Khulud, who is fighting to be able to bury her daughter and begin her healing. May was a mother, loving daughter, and successful PhD student. She was killed by the Israeli government last June. Israel won't release her body to her family. So with that as an instruction, I just want to get right into it. And I want to start with Badur. Um, Badur, what is Israel's policy when it comes to holding on to the bodies of Palestinians who have been killed by Israeli forces? And, and, you know, how long has this been going on? And what is the ostensible justification for it? And a multi-part question. Uh, just in general, what does international humanitarian law say about this policy? Okay, so we're talking about a decades-long policy uh, that dates back the first body that we have documented to be withheld by Israel dates back to 1964. Uh, but it's uh, we're almost certain that there were bodies that were withheld by Israel before that. Uh, the idea it was that Palestinians, and especially during the 1960s and 1970s, as part of the Palestinian Revolution, many Palestinians or some Palestinian fighters managed to enter Palestine and to enter into uh, armed confrontation with confrontations with Israeli soldiers. And they were killed during these confrontations. Israel did not recognize these Palestinians as, uh, as soldiers or as combatants, but rather as infiltrators. And as such, it refused to bury them uh, or document their burial or even grant them the most basic rights given to recognized uh, soldiers. Instead, it buried them in what it called symmetries for enemy combatants, 
which for Palestinians, Palestinian refers to as the symmetries of numbers because Palestinians are only indicated to by numbers rather than by their names. There are hundreds of Palestinians who are buried in such military uh, zones because these cemeteries of numbers are located in military zones. Uh, at the start, this policy, the shape of this policy was not clear. So the basis upon which Israel decides to bury a Palestinian in these cemeteries was not clear. Uh, there were prisoners who died or were killed in Israeli occupation prisons and who were dumped in these uh, cemeteries of numbers. And I say dumped because the conditions of burial in these uh, uh, cemeteries is, are notorious. There is, as, as I said, no documentation, no registration, at least until the mid-1990s, Israel refused to acknowledge even the existence of such symmetries of numbers until Palestinians began to contest that. At first, the one of the justifications used for this policy was that Palestinian funerals tend to turn into protests, and this was especially during the first intifada. And Israel wanted to deny that, it wanted to deny Palestinians the right to express their public grief during protests and to turn their grief and anger and private pain into a collective mobilizing force. Uh, so it tried to withhold the body or to detain it or to delay its release to its family in, by imposing restrictions. Uh, and during the 1990s and the early 2000s, the Israeli court regularly legitimized this policy. But starting from the last six years, and especially with a Israeli government cabinet decision of 2017, Israel regularized this policy in a sense and said that these bodies, Israel is authorized to withhold Palestinian bodies as bargaining chips, i.e. to use them in potential uh, negotiations with Hamas for the release of uh, two soldiers, uh, two Israeli soldiers who were killed during the Israeli war on Gaza, which Israel claims Hamas detains their bodies in 2014, since 2014. Based on this policy, which was expanded in 2020 to include not just uh, alleged Hamas members or Palestinians who allegedly carried out severe attacks and all allegedly because Israel decides whether they are Hamas members, whether they indeed allegedly uh, attempted any attacks or not. But in September 2020, Israel expanded the scope of this policy and said that uh, Israel is authorized, the Israeli army is authorized to withhold the body of any Palestinian, regardless of his or her political affiliation, who has allegedly committed an attack, regardless of the severity of attack. It's enough to try to allegedly carry out a karaming attack or to carry a cold or a, or a, cold, a knife or a gun. Uh, regardless of whether the attack caused injuries or not. On both cases, in the occasion of the uh, first decision of the cabinet and the expanded decision of the cabinet, based on which uh, Ahmed Iriqat was well, con body continued to be detained, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court, the High Court of Injustice, authorized the decision. Now, regarding international law, uh, there is no uh, specific prohibition under international law that says that a, an occupying power cannot withhold bodies. But uh, according to the report of the uh, rapporteur for uh, the OPT, Michael Link, he recognized that the withholding of bodies constitute a form of collective punishment, which is prohibited under international law. 
Furthermore, the fourth Geneva Convention urges uh, countries that the, the detaining force, especially for the Geneva Convention, Article 130, to release and to repatriate the bodies of uh, warriors or combatants who are killed in prisons or, or who are killed in fighting. In addition, there is an absolute prohibition on the desecration of bodies or the humiliation and the mistreatment of dead bodies under international law and international customary law. And finally, the European Court for Human Rights uh, decided in a uh, ruling regarding Russia's decision to pre prevent the burial of uh, Chechen fighters uh, after 20, 2002, uh, Russia uh, enacted a law that prevented Chechen fighters to be returned to their families. Uh, in a petition filed against this decision to the European Court of Human Rights, the European Court for Human Rights said that such a legislation is unconstitutional, violates the European Convention for Human Rights, violates the right to family life codified by this convention, which also means that the policy of Israel violates both international humanitarian law and international human rights law. Thanks, Badur. There's a lot that I, I want to come back to and unpack there further. I want to turn first to Nora. And, and Nora, I, I want to ask you to respectfully to talk about your family's experience. Your family, you know, you are an expert on the law. You're an expert on all of the issues that, that, that for anything related to Israel-Palestine, frankly. Um, but you are you know, you may have a second role here today, maybe a bigger role, which is your family's personal experience with this policy. Um, can, can you talk about that for us? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for highlighting that, Lara. I think that as much as I've been um, doing this advocacy way, you know, doing this advocacy work, very front facing, uh, it, it's a, an entirely new and incredible and unsettling dimension to do this um, on behalf of my own family so close. It's not that, you know, obviously Badur and any other Palestinian knows somebody, this affects their lives. You're not immune from it. But the, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on when you find on social media an image of uh, images of your family, your cousin, somebody that, you know, you remember very fondly sweet moments over mint tea, over dinners, night walks through Abu Dis, evening walks through Abu Dis, and watch, you know, as, as we all watched Ahmed being shot six times above the waist in two seconds um, with his hands up, trying to take a step back from the car. Um, and then, right, in that, in, on the day of his sister's wedding, I mean, there, was, there were so many contradictions because this was the day that we were on social media to see the sister's wedding, you know, the family, um, how joyous they were. And instead we were watching images of Ahmed. Um, that same day, they did not tell his sister, Iman, about Ahmed, what had happened to him until after she had taken her first few photos because they wanted her to have at least a few photos without that weight on her chest of the murder of her brother at a checkpoint separating two Palestinian cities. Um, and so the reason I mentioned that is because it was, it's, it's not just an intellectual enterprise and it's not just an advocacy project, right? But there's something quite, quite challenging existentially about watching that and something that you already know is a very, 
um, uphill battle, but then to have it happen so close to home. And then after his murder, that he be declared a terrorist, right? That's it. Palestinians are all would be terrorists until proven otherwise, even as they're murdered. And then for the past year and, and some change for him to be held hostage in an Israeli refrigerator associated with Tel Aviv University. It's an entirely different level of what, you know, what is it that we're fighting against? This incredibly cruel policy. You know, I, I often in all my work and my writing and my lectures, and my, I often insist on the non-exceptional nature of Israeli settler colonialism, of Israeli apartheid, right? Of Israeli territorial ambitions, of militarized national you know, supremacy. Those things are not unique to Israel. This policy, however, is quite unique. It can be traced to British colonial rule, but it cannot be traced to any other contemporary practice now. So this, in fact, um, is, is, has no corollary. Israel is, is in an abject violation of law, right? It is holding 81 Palestinians hostage. This is tantamount to torture, as well as cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment. It is a testament that there are zero levers of accountability between Israel's primary patron, the United States, which provides it with $3.8 billion in financial support every year, its military prowess, right? The fact that the U.S. maintains its own weapons caches within Israel for its operations. So this access, right? The only nuclear power um, and to have zero levers of accountability even for something, I mean, I say cruel, but the word is really gross. At what level, I mean, what level of degradation are we really willing to accept? And, you know, the added insult to injury, of course, is, is, is the vitriol and the garbage that somehow Ahmed or these other 80 or May, right? or these other um, 81 Palestinians deserve this and their families deserve this, right? There is work happening here um, that I think is, is, is what we really need to pay attention to. Um, I worked, I organized, I spent, you know, I spent my last summer um, basically trying to get Ahmed's body home. We, um, you know, there's this recent Supreme Court decision. I'm sure you're going to ask us about it, so I'll, I'll not discuss that. But that in Budur is going to tell us a lot about that as well. But, you know, there was that avenue of going through the Israeli Supreme Court. There was the avenue of we did get a special rapporteur, Michael Link, as well as four other special rapporteurs um, to, to weigh in on this. We submitted something to the, the Human Rights Council in collaboration with Al-Haq. We created a multimedia advocacy project that lifted up you know, a lot of personalities that cared about this. I and mean, I organized the Arakat family, which exists, you know, in diaspora and as immigrants in multiple states in the United States, by, but I organized them in three states in particular. We mobilized senators, six U.S. senators, including former, you know, now Vice President Kamala Harris on behalf of our family in California, 
to advocate for the return of his body as a matter of, you know, a constituent issue. And, and we, we did have a lot of traction. We actually had a paper trail. We had two senators actually send a letter, which, you know, Lara is not common. Nobody wants to do the paper trail thing. And in response, Benny Gantz, you know, Minister of Defense actually doubled down and said, not only are we going to keep all these bodies, including Ahmed's, but we're going to dig up other slain Palestinian bodies to hold them hostage as well. So uh, this is where we're at. And the Supreme Court decision was the last, you know, um, the last in the series of, you know, there, there's some hope as a result of the Supreme Court decision, but the, but the majority opinion to one is that Israel can hold Palestinian bodies hostage uh, in, in, for its military purposes, and, and, and it will be absolute discretion to the military. Thank you, Nora. I want to, I'm going to circle back to you um, in a moment, and I want to talk at, when we come back about what this says about dehumanization and collective punishment, because I, you know, there's, there's one part which I listen to you, and I think it sounds, you know, looking at policies like this, it does sometimes feel like the cruelty is the point. Um, but there's also the dehumanization, and there's also the, the, I mean, part of the dehumanization. I think of this as I, I am a Jewish American and the, the, the reverence and respect that we demand, um, you know, in terms of, you know, burials and respect for cemeteries and the, the extraordinary um, step of denying that to others, um, the, the dehumanization. So we're going to come back to that. But I want to come to Bittori first. Um, and you, you have previewed my next question. So Bittori, I want to talk about where this sits in terms of challenges, of course. Um, as Nora said, there was a recent Supreme Court decision. A lot of families are fighting for their remains, for their loved ones' remains right now. Can you talk about the way, you know, it, are any of these remains being, being released? You know, how long are families kept waiting? What is, what is that process? And to the extent that it's being challenged, is there really any recourse at all in Israeli courts? Um, or is that just another way, as we've all often seen with Israeli policies, where Israeli courts actually play the role of, of sanding off the sharp edges and legitimizing policies that, that, are, um, that are simply not legitimate? Um, and is there other recourse? We talk about you know, the UN or the ICC or international grassroots pressure. Um, where do you see that going? Where do you see that now and where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Israeli High Court, and I will just add one thing that in addition to the 81 Palestinians whose bodies are withheld as supposed bargaining chips, just imagine to one second the dehumanizing, how dehumanizing this word is, how brutally cruel. The oldest of which uh, those relatively new bodies has been withheld since April 2016. It's the body of Abdul Hamid Abu Surur, an 18 year old. In addition to these 81, there are the bodies of 254 Palestinians who are buried in the so-called cemeteries of numbers, including 122 who Israel acknowledged their place of burial, but continues to refuse to carry out any DNA tests, even though the court actually demanded that these DNA tests be carried and is adding these bodies, the bodies of the 122 Palestinians whose place of burial has been estimated also as bargaining chips. 
So, no. I just, sorry, just to clarify. So, the Israeli court has ordered DNA tests, and the Israeli yes. authorities are. The Israeli, the, Israeli, the Israeli army continues to procrastinate, said that there are security problems that prevent conducting such DNA tests for all 122 bodies. And we're talking about cases where the mother or the father are aging, are on the verge of death, and they really need to do the DNA tests in order to manage, at least to secure the, at some point in the future, the return of the body. So in with the exception of a couple of DNA tests that were conducted, Israel continues to refuse to conduct the DNA test, even though this recognition and this declaration of the place of burial has been issued in uh, February 2020. We're more than one year and a half since then, and the Israeli army continues to refuse to do these DNA tests. So, but in, in concerning it, going back to what the Israeli court says about it, and it's very important, uh, Lara, to say that. We're always told, told that the Israeli court is liberal, is uh, gives Palestinian a semblance of justice. But if its decisions on the cases of withholding body shows anything, is that it's absolutely to the contrary, that it's a court whose very existence is to legitimize the most inhumane and the cruelest Israeli policies. So the first decision was issued in September 2019. It was a so-called further hearing in which seven justices, seven Supreme Court justices uh, presided over this case. And in this case, the Israeli, in a four to three majority, the Israeli court decided that it was legal to withhold the bodies of Palestinians as bargaining chips. Why? Based on a British emergency regulation that dates back to 1945. And if you read, I don't want to summarize the case, but if you read, you just realize to the extent that these justices were prepared to engage in legal gymnastics to recreate the regulation, the British regulation that says absolutely nothing about withholding bodies are bargaining chips in order to say that this is necessary for security measures. But even the three justices who said that this policy was unconstitutional, it wasn't, they said it was unconstitutional not because it's immoral or not because it's unethical or it's because it opposes international law, but rather because there is no primary legislation that authorizes it. And they advised the Israeli parliament to enact such legislation in order to save them headache in order to say, please save us the, to have to legislate, to approve something that is not based on a specific law and to rely on the British emergency regulation and enact a law. And we will basically support this law, but enact the law. Israel didn't want to enact the law because it knew how uh, offensive enacting such a law would be to its reputation. Now, regarding the decision of Ahmed Elqat, Last couple of weeks ago, we after more than what eight months of deliberation, the Israeli court finally delivered its decision on the case of Ariqat. And the case of Ariqat is expanding the scope of the cabinet policy to withhold the body of any Palestinian, as I said, regardless of her political uh, affiliation, regardless of the severity of the alleged attack. Again, it was a two to one majority. Uh, opinion. So it wasn't a decisive uh, majority, it was just two to one. But the Israeli court said there is no change here. We, we This decision is based on a previous Israeli court decisions. The Israeli army has full discretion 
we trust that the Israeli army is using its discretion well in order to withhold these bodies. We trust that the withholding of bodies helps Israel advance the potential of uh, conducting, conducting negotiations. The majority decision argued that there is, okay, they acknowledge that there is some certain form of violation to the Palestinian right to dignity, the right to family and the right to, and other rights, but it wasn't a violation to the core of the right of dignity, which is absolutely ridiculous to claim that to add in, to add insult to injury during the court hearing that one of the judges asked the Israeli army so are you basically saying that the Israeli army is authorized to accumulate bodies in order to put pressure on Hamas to negotiate and basically this is what they're doing they're just accumulating they're adding bodies they're basically piling up bodies in order to use them as bargaining chips. And worst of all, there were occasions where the, the very killing of the Palestinian and the kidnapping of his body, the whole reason behind that was to capture the body, even in cases where the Palestinian, there were cases when the Palestinian was killed inside his or her home. So it just shows the a complicit, not just the complicity, basically, but the active role that the Israeli court has played in authorizing these decisions since the 1990s, continuing to now. And, and we can't forget that at some point in the 1990s, in the in a case where Israel kidnapped, uh, captured the Palestinians from South Lebanon, including Palestinian civilians, and used living people as bargaining chips. And the initial decision of the Israeli court was also to authorize this uh, kidnapping and this use of bargaining chips of living people in order to uh, oblige Hezbollah to reveal information about an Israeli pilot who has who has gone missing. So just a continuation just shows how, how the Israeli occupation authorities really don't see Palestinian or Arabs as human beings, but rather as tactics, as points to be scored in a political confrontation, it doesn't even recognize the most basic rights of their families, of their loved ones to mourn, to grieve, to put flowers on their graves. It just flouts any uh, form of respect to human rights, to, uh, to religious freedom, to religious and cultural rights, and continues to do that with, as I said, the full support and the act and the green light of a court that we're always told that this is a liberal court, this is a progressive court, but it's anything but really when it comes to Palestinian rights. Thank you. That's, I, I mean, I think you, you said that incredibly powerfully. It, it, it's, you know, for a long time, I think those of us who follow this, the, the argument that the Israeli courts are a recourse for Palestinians ha, has, has very clearly not been true for forever. Um, and the, the fact is that the courts, you know, in issue after issue, are really used to, to shape and legitimize the policies. I, I always think back to a section in Michal Svard's book, uh, A Wall in the Gate, where you have uh, the general in charge of the Northern West Bank, I think the Israeli general, basically says that they relied on human rights groups to help them shape the policies that they could get away with, right? That was, that was the, they, 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 in fact, the, the human rights groups were actually playing a helpful role, not intentionally, obviously. But I want to dig more, Nora, I mean, you've been writing and researching on this for years. I want to dig more into what this policy means. And, you know, for me, when I listen to, to both of you and I look at this policy and I'm familiar with the array of occupation policies, which, you know, are collective punishment, are illegal under international law, which brazenly violate just the basic sense of human rights and civil rights. 
this policy seems to almost embody better than anything the wholesale dehumanization of Palestinians, using bodies either as a way of punishing the families or as a bargaining chip or as, you know, just again, the cruelty being the point. Um, can you talk about this? And can you put it in the context of the broader dehumanization of Palestinians that characterizes Israeli policies and practices writ large? And can you also, putting on your expert legal hats in your amazing book, can you talk about how this policy fits into Israel's overall contempt for international norms, norms, international law, all of that? Because I think it's important to note that this is not, I'm sorry, this policy is not like a little exception that somehow happens. It right. fits into right. that seamlessly. And it's something, as Vidur was saying, that the Israelis don't hide. It's quite open what they're doing. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 not at all. I mean, on, the, the fact is, is that it's precisely because of its non-exceptional nature, right? That for Israeli society, I mean, I think what people who don't spend a lot of time in the region don't understand is how little right? Israelis actually see Palestinians that since the, especially since the construction of the apartheid wall since 2002 and deepening fragmentation of Palestinians, um, that basically you connect the settlements in the West Bank to the center, right? You can basically travel across Palestinian lands. Well, all of these are Palestinian lands. Obviously this is a settler colony, but you're traveling across the West Bank, right? to the middle of Tel Aviv and you're on Israeli roads, right? That are off limits to most, um, if not all Palestinians, especially those who don't have citizenship. Israelis never see Palestinians. They are out of sight, out of mind. The way that the media constructs Palestinians is absolutely abhorrent that even in the middle of the massacres, um, in May, in the Gaza Strip, for example, one specific, ex you know, I, I don't watch uh, a lot of Israeli media. I follow some just to stay, you know, not out of touch. But there was a video of a young 10-year-old girl whose home gets demolished in Gaza. She happens to speak English and with, without an accent, really excellent, very clearly. And so the reporter asks her, what is to be done, right? This burden that's constantly placed on Palestinians. Now what is to be done, right? Nobody ever thinks, let's punish the aggressor, right? Let's ask the aggressor, how could they? The burden is placed upon this 10-year-old girl. What is to be done? And she says, I don't know. I'm 10, right? She's a third grader. And the Israeli media spun that to basically make it a case of Palestinian acting. That even in our greatest depths of pain, right? That even that is fabricated. You know, there's something quite self-involved um, about Israeli society where everything is about them. That even Palestinian pain becomes somehow about making Israel look worse or bad, right? That we would somehow sacrifice our lives and live in misery so that we can make Israel look bad, right? There is something so deeply perverted about this on the level of one, Israelis being that self-absorbed, right? Which is not something that the international community is not also responsible for because they're never held to account. 
They're never placed in a context of an international community, but always above. Somehow what they do is exceptional. Settler colonialism for, for Zionists is exceptional because it's part of Jewish national self-determination. Killing Palestinians is exceptional because of a trauma and some West, you know, debt that Western civilization has for, for actually allowing this racialized violence against Jews to take place and not, not to be at all. There's never been a reckoning with Nazism and you know, anti-Semitism that derives from white supremacy and instead becomes displaced onto uh, uh, the Middle East and a Palestinian struggle, which has its own histories. Not that there isn't an anti-Semitic legacy, but it's not the same and it can't be grafted onto the Middle East. And yet all of this is disregarded in this moment of exception. Um, so, you know, Budur mentioned this, this thing about the, you know, just going back to the legal, Lara, you're asking me about, you know, what does law have to do with this? I just want to bring it back to, to emphasize that this 2-1 decision in the case of Ahmed, where it was split, you know, even that I found very offensive because the dissenting judge didn't say there's zero evidence that Ahmed was actually trying to ram the kiosk which is so infuriating, even if you watch the video, right? The, the police officer that he knocks down gets on her feet in time to watch him being gunned down. What kind of person intent on car ramming, right? Kind of bumps into the kiosk where the officer gets up in time to watch him be executed on the day of his sister's wedding. I mean, for anybody who has any sense and is not an absolute anti-Palestinian racist, this makes, this holds no water. And we actually, the family went so far as to work with forensic architecture to reconstruct, because Israel refuses to do an investigation, to reconstruct that incident and to demonstrate that in fact, he might've been decelerating in that moment, right? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of the way Palestinians have been racialized. They're racialized as a threat for existing because Palestinian existence is a challenge to Zionist settler sovereignty. Zionist settlers do not have uncontested sovereignty. It is still in contest in a way that other settler colonies, it's not as contested, right? If you think of Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the United States, right? their settler sovereignty is not as contested despite ongoing indigenous resistance. But Palestinian, when it comes to Palestine, it's very much in contest. So the refugee is racialized as a security threat, right? It's why Yitzhak Rabin had said when Palestinians were marching from Gaza, kill a hundred of them, kill a hundred of them immediately so the rest won't come. It's why when there's Palestinians marching from refugees marching from Lebanon, from the border in Lebanon or the border in Syria or the border in Jordan, that that's considered an outright security breach, right? It's not about what's going to be done to Israelis. It's the fact that Palestinians here and home and even the living memory is a threat. Now combine that with the securitization of Gaza as an absolute threat where it becomes collapsed with Hamas, without any distinction of Hamas's military wing 
or its political wing without any regard to the fact that we have Hamas has demonstrated itself as a rational political actor intent on quarreling its power just like any other political party right which is why it makes the decision to leave Syria for Qatar which is why it makes the decision to amend its charter right which is why it makes its decision to try to gain its legitimacy the way that the muslim brotherhood had been doing in egypt before the clampdown right hamas is a rational political actor and yet all of that is disregarded and and israel actually does know this its security apparatus would rather see hamas in place than see it dissolve because then they know that there's a power vacuum and it's been because of hamas that there is anything called you know they actually prevent protests but it's the securitization of the Gaza Strip as synonymous with Hamas and Hamas as synonymous with a monster, right? A vampire blood sucking monster, right? That we see the securitization of Gaza take on incredibly new heights so that the, there was an Israeli Supreme Court decision in 2018 in response to the Gaza March of Return, right? We're pal, you know, this is what's so infuriating, Lada. Everybody's always trying to say, well, if you just had, you know, Palestinian, a Palestinian Gandhi, we had 40,000 Palestinians marching every Friday in the Gaza Strip to a securitized, militarized perimeter with snipers around it. Okay, shooting down Palestinians like birds who were unarmed, what they had incendiary kites and tires, right? And notwithstanding that, the Israeli Supreme Court held that the, that that march of return was a new Hamas tactic in the war against Israel, and that the incendiary kites, right, kites on fire, <laughs> were somehow the security threat that then enabled Israel, because there were Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations that challenged the the military's use of lethal force against these protesters, and said that these are. These are civil protests. You need to use law enforcement. You need to shoot at their legs. You need to use water hoses to keep them back. You do not need to shoot them to kill. And yet the Israeli military shot to kill and some 95% of those that were killed, Palestinian marchers in the head, in the neck, in the torso, in the back, right? And the Israeli Supreme Court upheld that and said that the civilians in these protests were the exception, not the rule. Why do I mention that? Because this boogeyman is carried over and this dehumanization is carried over now in Ahmed's case as well, where even the dissenting judge doesn't want, you know, dissented to Ahmed's body being held, not because there's zero evidence. And even if there was evidence, I mean, this is, you know, this is, that, that's the discussion. Even if there was evidence that withholding of bodies here really needs to be interrogated and is absolutely unacceptable, that that he is not a Hamas, Ahmed is not a Hamas member, therefore he's not a terrorist who deserves to be held. Do you see that even the liberal dissent is incredibly insulting and gross, right? And Israel has been judge, jury, and executioner in almost all of these cases. Um, and we, the Human Rights Council has found that, the UN Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has found that the problem is, is that Israel not only is not held, you know, you, you called it as the contempt for international law. It's not necessarily contempt. I don't think Israel can do what it's doing without the help of international law, 
right? And what it actually does is it tries to change international law to suit its purposes. So all of the laws that we see that actually actually shrink the category of who is the Palestinian civilian, as we've seen in the Gaza March of Return um, jurisprudence, for example, those, you know, it, it expands who's a direct participant in hostilities. This has to do with humanitarian law. Who's a direct participant? They remove the temporal element. You know, usually you can target a civilian who is, you know, in, for the time that they carry arms. But the way that they reinterpreted that um, in Picati versus government of Israel is to say that the time that Palestinians don't carry arms is only the rest in between the next time they're going to pick them up. Therefore, it's their membership, which makes them targets. It is a completely perverted revolutionary decision that makes Palestinian targets at all times, even without some sort of you know, um, militant affiliation. But the fact that Israel does that when it shrinks the civilian, doesn't isn't just contained to make Palestinians vulnerable, it's actually exported to other sites of warfare. The United States DOJ decision, right, and under the Obama administration to target Anwar al-Awlaqi in, um, um, as part of AQAP based its decision on Israeli jurisprudence. So it's global, Israel is creating global vulnerability through its challenge of international law, it's not actually just being above the law. They're actually changing the law to suit its interests in a way that then creates vulnerability for, for other people and not just Palestinians. Thank you for that. And, and I actually am thinking, listening to you, that I want to have you back and have another conversation just about this aspect of the Israeli, um, the sort of bleed over into other nations' um, policies. Um, we see that a lot in the U.S., obviously, with free speech and all the concerns here. And I think that's an incredibly rich vein that I would like to go deeper into. Um, but Dora, I want to pick up on this. I have one more question for each of you. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about, um, much like Nora has drawn into the broader context on dehumanization, the broader context here. And I, I know one of you, I think it was Nora, talked about Israel being the only country that has a policy like this, or maybe you did. I want to talk about that because our audience is probably very accustomed to hearing that Israel is, you know, a democracy. It's comparable to democracies in Europe and the United States. And critics of Israel are constantly holding it to a different and higher standard than every other country. And this is wrong and probably anti-Semitic. Talk about how this policy of holding hostage Palestinian bodies fits into those two arguments. Um, what is the situation of other nations? And, and to the extent that you're comfortable, um, if you want to address the, the point that Nora just raised, the danger of this actually, this, this reframing where all Palestinian bodies are dehumanized, the Palestinian people are dehumanized such that bodies legitimately are treated as bargaining chips. And I'll add one last point that I hadn't put in my initial thoughts, but I want to add it, which is, it's striking to me that when Israel justifies its policy of holding bodies hostage, it often justifies by saying what Hamas is doing. <laughs> like that's where it finds the analog, right? The terrorist organization is holding our soldiers' bodies hostage. So therefore we are not constrained to act any better than the terrorist organization, which I think is a, a striking point um, to, to dig into a little bit. Yeah, Lara, it's important to remember that the cemeteries of numbers where hundreds of Palestinians and Arabs were dumped in the 1960s and 70s and 80s precede the existence of Hamas. So it's, it's important to remember that this policy, this act, 
the insulting burial and dumping of Palestinian bodies without any respect for their dignity has been done way before even Hamas had existed. So keep that in mind. And keep that in mind also that Israel for decades also withheld bodies because it didn't want their families to hold funerals because it was afraid of the funerals turning into protests, regardless of the, just using them as bargaining chips. And the court, the Israeli court also uh, authorized this. Just want to say something. I think we're probably besides Ahmad, and it's very important because it also reflects into what you said about how Israel is, how this uh, policy can be contextualized within Israel's pro broader context of oppressing and repressing Palestinian and the whole issue of accumulation by disposition and Israel's policies of necro violence, how Israel controls every aspect of Palestinian life and Palestinian death. And just give a few examples of what it means for other families. Noura Nora mentioned the war, the massacres of Palestinian protesters in uh, the Gaza March of return. Just wanted to say that one of those who were killed by Israeli snipers, a Palestinian child who was, who was aged 15, his body was held by Israel for three full years three full years between 2018 and 2021. Only in April 2021 did Israel return his body for burial. Uh, even though he was a child, even though he was killed by Israeli snipers, he was obviously not a Hamas member. Second, even if the Palestinian, it, not only is there evidence that he carried out an attack, even if indeed Palestinian carried out an attack against Israel, including a fatal attack, every human being is entitled to the right to dignified burial. Every family has the right to visit their loved ones, to have a grave. No family in the world should be subjected to this limbo because really families live in a limbo. Azhar Abu Sroor, the mother of Abdul Hamid, whose son's body has been held since 2016, she says she tries to juggle jobs, she tries to live, but her life is almost suspended. She, she's a teacher, she tries to go on with her life to care for her other children, but she she just, she keeps thinking that, what if my son was still, were still alive? I haven't seen the body. So there's maybe a tiny, tiny bit of hope that he's still alive. Another, many, and many families keep repeating that, that there is just, they live on the hope, on the inch of hope that maybe, just maybe, because we haven't seen the body, it means that our loved ones is still alive, even though they might have seen video evidence of the execution, and many of the killings are carried out as an execution, and they're still clinging to hope because they have no tangible evidence to the death, they have no right to closure, they can't do the very basic act of just visiting their, of saying goodbye to their loved one, and no family in the world should be subjected to that, to this. Palestinian families should not be subjected to this, regardless of what their children did or did not do. And of course, not in the context, obviously, the, the having this in a context of occupation makes it even way worse because Israel, look, Israel colonizes the Palestinian body from the moment we are in our mother's wombs. Israel says that Palestinian Jerusalemites who are married to West bankers, for example, are not sometimes are not authorized to register their children as, uh, as Jerusalem residents, for example. So this shows you how Israel controls us from the moment we are born. Israel controls our residency, can displace us, can uh, kick us out and expel us from our cities and control our freedom to movement. Israel can 
can control who we are entitled to get married to, who, how we love, who the color, based on the color of the ID of the person, who, whom we can love and who we can love live with. Even after our death, Israel continues to literally haunt us to our graves. Israel says that even Palestinian prisoners who, has, who have served decades in Israeli prisons, Israel continues to withhold their bodies even after their prison. So it's within Israel bureaucratic, this policy should be viewed within Israel's broader labyrinth of control that seeks to, to dictate every single point of Palestinian life, including Palestinian death. It's a form of violence on the Palestinian body when it's, this body is alive and when this body is dead. It's a form of controlling, of, of showing sovereignty, of enforcing sovereignty on Palestinian living and its spaces. Because when Israel says that, for example, Palestinians are not entitled to only 20 or 30 people are entitled to participate in a funeral. When Israel imposes fines on Palestinians for having large funerals, when Israel decides the day and time and hour of burial, when Israel says that it can hold Palestinian bodies for decades, it's controlling our right to grief. It's forcing us to live amidst this reality of complicated grief, of not knowing, of fearing, and of sending a message to the entire Palestinian population. This is what happens to you when you resist. This is what happens to you when you dis, uh, you disobey. So you dare not disobey. And we will always haunt you. And we can impose we, we can impose full control over your bodies, over your lives. And this is important to view that within this context. And I agree that Israel does have a unique policy. Right now, there is, for example, after the European Court for Human Rights struck, uh, struck down the uh, Russian law, there is no country in the world that has a specific law in its counter-terrorism regime that says that restricts the right of, palace of people to hold their funerals and imposes such severe restrictions of funerals. There is no single country in the world whose top court has authorized the army to withhold bodies literally as bargaining chips without any sense of shame. And even, Noura, as Noura said, even the dissenting judges don't oppose the policy out of moral concerns, but because there is no, because of technical reasons, there is no law that authorizes that, so this is why we oppose it. But once there is a law, it's okay, as if the existence of a law is enough to make an immoral policy moral. But I also want to see it as an extension, uh, Lara and Noura, to many colonial ways of controlling the, the, the dead. And we, many of us saw the, uh, the residential schools in Canada, and saw how people People, how children, bodies of children were buried under the rubble of these schools, how their families had no right to bury them with dignity and peace. We should remember, for example, how the Franco regime for decades denied uh, Republican fighters who were killed or executed during the Spanish Civil War the right to mourn their loved ones, and how these families, decades after the end of the Civil War, continued to fight for their right to bury their dead ones with dignity and with freedom. We should connect it to, uh, the, uh, for example, to Belgium colonialism and how it tried to use or display or mock uh, the bodies of uh, dead uh, freedom fighters, how the French, for instance, used the bones of Algerian freedom fighters as if they were artifacts in museums. So this is why it's important to view Israel's policy of necroviolence and Israel's, the violence that Israel imposes on the bodies within a broader context of 
uh, the colonial policies to control every inch of the colonized life and death, while also acknowledging that what we have in place here and what is supported by the United States and is supported by Europe and is supported even by the, the international community, the whole of the international community, is unique in a way because it's so shameless. Israel has absolutely no shame in saying it plain and clearly, yes, we are detaining bodies as tactic, as bargaining chips, and no, we are not ashamed of doing that. It's totally okay, and Israel will continue to say that it's totally okay because it has never been held accountable. Thanks, and I, I find myself, that's a, a incredibly powerful, I find myself thinking as you're talking about this, about the the sort of, the, on the other side of this, this coin, the, the Israeli use of bodies in settlements. I mean, I think about every time I go to Hebron and I see people, you know, visiting and celebrating or, or visiting and memorializing Baruch Goldstein, the American citizen settler who massacred Palestinians at the Ibrahimi Mosque, uh, Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron, who is buried in Hebron. And his grave site is a site of pilgrimage for, for um, religious and political, for right-wing, um, well, for certain people. Um, I also think about, and this is something some of my friends who work on settlements have, have written about a lot, is the establishment of settlements, um, cemeteries, as another arm of um, taking land in the West Bank. Um, bearing in mind that from the Jewish perspective, you can't touch cemeteries. Cemeteries are sacrosanct. You know, the, it's the respect and reverence um, for ancestors. And, and, and you, you can't, you, you know, once you've put down roots with a cemetery, the idea is you can never be, be asked to leave. That cemetery can never be moved. And we're seeing the, the, the building of, of cemeteries for, for, for settlers across the West Bank. Um, turned into Museum of Tolerance, Lara, reminder that- And then of course, I'm sorry, I, I forgot about that, which is, yeah, the, the if, if anybody wants to look at this online, I've written about this and I know probably both of you have the Simon Wiesenthal Center and it's Museum of Tolerance, which it built in Jerusalem and it selected as its site in Jerusalem, a historic Islamic, um, a historic Muslim cemetery. Um, and it came up with all sorts of arguments for why that somehow shouldn't be a problem, despite the fact that um, people who have equities in that cemetery said it absolutely is a problem. Apparently, you can make a statement about tolerance um, as a major Jewish organization while building your museum literally on the graves of Muslims. Um, Nora, I want to give you the last word. Um, and you know, to the extent that, that you want to talk more about this, your, your family's case, because in large part because of who you are, um, and the fact that you are, you know, so such a powerful voice on this, your family's case has actually garnered more attention than most of these cases. You, you and your family were able to rally members of Congress and get, you know, attention from the media. And still, obviously, it, it has not succeeded in changing the policy. Um, I guess my question is sort of where does one go from here? Well, first of all, what does that disclose? You've talked about the, the acquiescence by the international community, and I would argue that there's actual, um, if not deliberate collaboration, certainly responsibility, right, for not challenging this. But what does is, what is your experience say about the role of the international community, and where does this go next? Where is the effort to challenge us? How does, how does that fit into the broader challenge, whether for Palestinian rights or liberation or human rights writ large and anti-colonialism? And you're going to get the last word, so... You know, end this however you wish. Well, I want to start by echoing um, Badur's, you know, really powerful connection to colonial policies 
ongoing as well, right? The unearthing of mass uh, graves of indigenous children, the fact that there were scholars um, who, you know, were expressing indignation, Harsha Walia, who said, burn them all down, who then suddenly gets run out of her university, the incongruence between the indignation for the actual policy versus the response to it or the resistance to it is, is you know, it's not only the, the similarities in this colonial practice and these colonial legacies, but it's also the similarities in the way that resistance is punished across these geographies, right? So that the other thing that connects us very much as Palestinians to other, you know, freedom fighters, you know, on, you know, indigenous peoples who are battling against the line three pipeline, Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, Filipinos who are protesting the police state and the use of, you know, terrorism frameworks in order to clamp them down, our, our kin throughout, you know, uh, the Emirates in Bahrain who are fighting for a semblance of freedom and yet they see that their own authoritarian regimes enter into security recognition pacts with Israel that aligns them with the United States. And about, I mean, this is big, right? This is big. We keep the, we keep finding that the case of Palestine is both exceptional and exemplary, right? And so, and, and to keep reminding people of that, that the dehumanization that we're enduring um, might seem crazy to people only if they're ignoring what's happening around them, right? Only if they're ignoring what's happening around them, especially when we see in the United States an ongoing, um, an ongoing battle to just say Black Lives Matter. And folks want to come back and say all lives matter. But yeah, but we knew that it's clearly the lack of, of lack of mattering and lack of significance for the taking of black life through extrajudicial executions, whether it be through the form of lynching or it be through the form of unaccountable police and vigilante violence, right? Or the desensitization of that public, you know, that spectacular um, taking of life. Uh, these are things that we very, very, very much relate to. In terms of, you know, our own work, it was, I have to be honest, just on a personal note, um, I, yes, there is, there's a dimension of this and Ahmed's case, which becomes very high profile because of, of a lot of the work um, that I had been doing in these communities anyway. So it was, you know, levers that were, were easy to reach, but also, and I had to emphasize this, this was sensitive for Palestinians as well. Ahmed is not an exception. Ahmed is exemplary. Ahmed is one of many. Even his own extended family, when they saw me pushing us to do more, said to me, Ahmed's not the first, nor is he going to be the last. This is how normalized also, you know, we this these are our modes of survival. There's sensitivity because the Ariqat name is also associated with, you know, Dr. Sa'ab Ariqat, may he rest in uh, peace of power, but his role as PLO chairman by the end of his life, right? Excuse me, sorry, not chairman, but um, the head of the executive committee at the end of his life. So there was also resentment that, oh, is this why they're getting, you know, that the family, that there's more emphasis. And it was the reminder that this is emblematic of our lives. But the fight for Ahmed is the fight for all of these you know, for all of this lane, it's for all of the families, the petition against Tel Aviv uh, University, the call for academic boycott and the reaffirmation and the reminder that the academy is not immune 
from Israel's apartheid system, from its settler colonial practices, was for all the bodies, right? So, I mean, the very thing that you raise is also what makes this complicated, but which, you know, what also then makes it exacerbating is despite all of that, despite, you know, the, 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 my ability to dedicate my time full time to this issue um, for, for, at, you know, for a number of months um, or the work that we did or the amount of attention that we leveraged or the op-eds that we published or the forensic architecture investigation or the submissions to the United Nations or the lobbying of these senators, right? That all of that basically resulted in a harsher policy. So it puts us, I think it puts us where we've always been. There is no way out but out. There is no way through but through. And I don't know when you're going to play this podcast, Lara, but we just woke up to news that six Palestinian prisoners in Israel's highest security prison in Jilboa dug a tunnel with spoons from under their toilets up through the prison and out to freedom. A demonstration that despite our oppressors' harshest means, of containing us and denying us freedom, that they are not insurmountable. They are not invincible, right? And it requires that kind of imagination, right? You know, and I have to say this as a, as a family member who did go, you know, when I when I saw Iman's pictures on her wedding day or when um, Khaltu Najah, um, Ahmed's mother, looks out the window because she's not really she's still in disbelief that Ahmed's dead. She hasn't seen her son's body. She hasn't laid him to rest, right? That those are the things that remind me that as, mu- as, as cruel and as powerful as our oppressors are, they are not invincible. There is nothing as powerful as the will to be free and the road to freedom. And so uh, we continue on that. We continue on that path. We continue through all forms of advocacy. We saw that most recently in the Intifada of Unity, where we saw Palestinians overcome deep, deep geographic political fragmentations to unite. We saw them do it with a new, you know, latent Palestinian youth leadership that actually doesn't have and infrastructure or funding. We saw it despite what the PA would want them to do, which is to quell those protests. We saw Palestinians rise up again and literally break the dam in how we understand, even understand the question of Palestine so that they have created a vocabulary, in the words of Edward Said, a vocabulary for understanding a Palestinian homeland and its dispossession, which has hitherto been unavailable. Right. It's when you understand that there is there is a homeland and its dispossession that Palestinians become eligible both for being victims. We are not responsible for our own deaths. We have been killed and and dispossessed by somebody. Right. We can be victims, but it also means that we can also exercise the right to self-defense. Two of these things, fundamental things that have been denied to us and Palestinians are continuing to struggle. And we showed once again that, that, that that's the work and we're doing it in community with um, global movements, all, all, all in search of freedom. Wow. Um, okay, we're going to have to stop here. I, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm, I'm humbled and moved and wish we could continue on today, but I will plan on 
inviting you both back to ask you to talk more. So Madura and Nora, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today, for sharing your insights with our audience. Um, and for our audience, thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Nora at, on Twitter at, um, at, and then for number four, Nora. And you can follow Badur's work at JLAC at www.jlac.ps. Um, I will make sure that in the um, links that are included with this podcast, there's a link to Badur's um, research paper on the topic we were talking about today. It's important work, you should read it. Um, and finally, as always, I want to remind uh, listeners to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content we're posting every week uh, like this one. And you can also find the podcast on our website at www.fmep.org. And with that, we will end this. I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thoughts.